0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood host, uh, Dr. Jim, your resident talent attraction retention development nerd. And with me, I have our illustrious co-host, LB. So super excited to, when am I not super excited about a guest that we have going on, but this is actually a special event. This is the inaugural episode of our Innovation Focus. So in these series of shows, we are going to be spotlighting industry disruptors and innovators who are coming in and upending the apple cart of how business has always been done or has typically been done. So I'm super pumped to have our featured guest, drum roll, please. You're the drum roll guy. That's that's not a good drum roll. So Omar, super pumped to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Omar, as greatly introduced by the guys here,
1: co-founder of Trainio. We are a relatively new startup in the UK, now expanded to the US and across the world. And ultimately we are trying to get people from all backgrounds into the tech sector and change education, as we know it.
0: I have a special place in my heart for startups. I've always worked in either startup or turnaround organization. And LB has been in similar setups where he's typically been involved in turnaround operations. So this is going to be a great conversation. And we'll get into some pretty significant details about Trainio in general and how Trainio is looking to change the game when it comes to e-learning and training and breaking into SaaS. So it's going to be a great conversation. So with... uh, with that being said, I want to set the stage a little bit. So you're a co-founder of Trainio. That's what you're doing right now. And you're doing some really innovative things. But I want to wind the clock back and talk a little bit more about how you got here. So tell us your journey. Give us a feel for for what that was like. I grew up in the UK, probably the second
1: city, Birmingham, two hours north of London. Grew up in an area called hanworth which is like a normal workplace area. Where people can do the re- research on that if they so feel so growing up as I did like work class background we weren't like broke it wasn't a struggle like I can't say I struggle or not we were just normal right damn right. amazing like looking back my after parents did a great job um youngest of four so I guess growing up it was okay and the route that you're pretty much told is you you go to school you go to university you get a job and that's how you get out of I guess what we would call the bits you get a proper job you get to move out the area and that's kind of how you live your life so going through school I, I was in all lessons and academics so I was smart I was that naturally clever kid that I didn't really listen but I'd always get good grades so growing up I was quite good at school and just talked a lot in the lessons and got taller a fair bit but that kind of got the grades so it was okay when I got the plan was always go college go university and get a good job when I actually got to college we would call it that's what we call sixth form like right before you'd get to university if you like within the states so things happen life got flipped and upside down for me there's a lot of things that happened and took me off the track a little bit deciding not to go to university and that's where I saw how life changes when you don't go down the traditional route where you get the ballaking from your family you get you don't get the same job opportunities every interview you go into your question as to you know why do you go university and and you get rejected even off the bat as well. So, both sides, I be the side where you're lauded, you're academic, you can, you're can you told you can do anything you want. And then, as soon as you decide not to go down that route, you're shunned, not just by personally, but also professionally. You're usually shunned by society, thrown away, and you haven't really got any options. So, that was a, a big shock at the time. Realistically, like me, I was always money motivated. And so, I was always money. I always wanted to make money. So, I fell into sales because that was the only job that kind of took me i did a little bit of door-to-door before i went to university i actually went to university for a year realized it wasn't for me i I, I didn't even go i just went because we used to get like student grants student loans so i got the money chilled don't know if i did decided it wasn't i wasn't going to go and do it that's when you get the backlash from everyone and realistically i was looking at my options and sales was pretty much the only thing i could do is either sales or an apprenticeship i did a bit of sales Family said again, sales isn't a good job. Your sales, I don't know why it's like in the US, right? But sales isn't really seen as a career over here. Like it's just seen as you're that guy that sells PPI. And then that's pretty much all it is. So I, I did an apprenticeship for about six months. It was for a, a big company. But like all you do in the apprenticeship is you're just entering data into a spreadsheet, right? There's one time when I was just scraping gum off the tables because right, they didn't have anything for me to do. So that was absolutely ridiculous. So I just handed my notice on one day and then I said, look, I'm going to go into sales. I got that. Absolute massive backlash from everyone, but I said, I'm going to do it because that's where you can make a lot of money. And that's where I got into sales.
0: Thanks for giving us the uh, the overview, but I want to break this up a little bit and and get into a little bit more more detail. So you're the youngest of four. And one of the things that I'm curious about is you have the example of all of your older siblings that may or may not have shaped your worldview and what the path looks like. So tell us a little bit about how being the youngest of four may or may not have made it even more difficult to make the transitional choices that you you, you made. Because I'm I'm assuming that if your three older siblings had a path that, that was laid out in front of you, and I would imagine from a cultural perspective, there's some expectation that you follow in some version of that path. Tell me a little bit about the dynamics of that, because that adds a level of pressure and expectation. Yeah,
1: probably added more pressure because I'm the youngest by quite a while, right? Like my sister is seven years older, then it's eight and nine. So you're raised by everyone, which is great. And that was that's one of the, the positives. But then in terms of not going to university, not going the time the traditional route, not really listening to anyone that and actually a pressure. So you're not just getting told off from your parents, you're also getting told off from your three siblings who are like your parents but not but you're also getting told off from five people and pressured and, and been trying to direct you in a certain way. So When you deviate from that path, you're not just deviating from mom and dad, you're deviating from everybody, which is super hard.
0: So you have the relational familial familial pressure that you're dealing with, but there's also the cultural component too, right? You and I are from similar cultures. I'll have you talk about the, the particulars of that, but there's a cultural expectation too. Like you are expected to do things a certain way. And if you go off that path, there's going to be conversations and you have the double whammy. I didn't have four siblings. I just had a younger sister or have a younger sister. So you have your parents and your siblings and then the broader community that you're culturally aligned with that are probably on you too. So what did that look like in terms of the cultural implications of the decision that you made and the pressure that that had? That
1: was massive. So I'm, I guess I'm like second generation. So my dad was like the first generation in his family to come over. So you're always taught that. You have to get a degree because if you don't, then you're not going to get to move out like of the area or you're stuck in that way. So when you go against that, everyone all of a sudden changes the way they look at you. You're seen as disappointment. You're seen as a failure, no matter how well or not. I had these discussions with with a lot of people like my uncle and everyone who told me I'd never get I'd never make over 30 grand a year. I'd never become a, a manager because apparently being a manager was a good job no one to marry you because you haven't got a degree everyone's saying yeah you're gonna do well and gonna be the next best thing you've got everything but then all of a sudden that's changed and it's not just it's your family and then it's everybody else around until so all of a sudden you went from being like golden boy to being like the bottom of the the rocks and even now to this day there's people in the family who because they're first generation they've come over they still don't really understand what we're doing so all they say is why do you have a degree why don't you go to university why don't you this job? Why do you be a lawyer? Why didn't you, be a, you do that to this day? Even though we've got the startup and we're growing and I've done whatever I've done in my career to this day, you, even now we still get looked down on. You're still a disappointment to a lot of people.
0: This is why I'm hammering in on this particular area, because I don't know if the broader audience that listens to our show can really relate to this. But the amount of pressure that children of immigrants have to hold up quote unquote, their family honor and do right by the sacrifices that their parents have made and follow a particular path. That's hard to describe to someone from a non-immigrant community or background. And what I'd like you to explain is in the face of all of those things that, that you dealt with, the community, your family, your siblings, all of that pressure, how did you manage the courage necessary to chart your own path? What was that process like? Because that's a brave thing that you did.
1: And I think it goes either two ways with a lot of people for a lot of people can rightly so can bring you down and, and it can, you can shut off from everything. But I think with me, I was quite headstrong. It gave, it had the opposite effect. It gave me a chip on my shoulder. And we always say in sales, a person with a, a chip on the shoulder and a point to prove is a, is a dangerous person. And that's what it, it did for me. Like I said, all right, everyone's saying, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to earn this much money. I'm never going to progress. And it said, all. In my head, the words, maybe this builders put it unsound, but it's safe. Watch what I do. So then I moved out at the age of twenty, and I said, "I'm going to build a career. I'm going to do all on my own on my own two feet." Moving out at the age of twenty is not normal, especially for people from like my background and culture. It's, it's it's a shocker. You don't move out until you get married. It- Even then, people still live at home, right? Yeah. It's just norm to, to stay at home. So I moved out at the age of twenty. It gave me that chip on my shoulder, and yeah, you know, it, it maybe did make me a little bit bitter. And and I've noticed that over the years, it's definitely had it's had a positive effect, but a negative side has definitely made you bitter. And that chip on your shoulder can sometimes definitely eat away at you. Like you've always got a point to prove no matter what. Even now, if I'm doing relatively well, you've always got that feeling will probably never go away. But it's what drives you.
2: Omar, when you, when you were talking about that, some of the notes that I had written down was I think that you've overaccomplished disempowering beliefs is the, the technical term. Because what you're really talking about and battling against this whole idea and notion of what tradition is. And so Jim and I, we've had conversations oftentimes about this whole idea of the legacy that you carry. And what I heard you say, and maybe I'm projecting on you what how I grew up and I understand where I come from and my family responsibility in the cultural context, but I didn't necessarily ask for it. As you think about not following that path, how has that guided your path along wanting to be successful in doing what you're doing?
1: I think in terms of what I'm doing right now, there's there's other things that have happened as well. But one of the things it gives me is the fact that I don't want other people to go through the same emotional and, and physical challenges that I did, because it's it a profound effect on a lot of people. A lot of them can go the other way. So for me, having gone through that and what society has done as well that's what kind of that's one thing that drives me right I don't want other people growing up to feel like that. I don't want them to feel like a disappointment if they don't have gone down a certain route I don't want them to be cast away or, or feel like they've you know got to do more than someone else to to do well because of cultural or societal tradition so all the these things that have happened to me now I'd say it's a good thing because it you you, you can only care about the I have a firm belief of like practical empathy you can only tr- truly care if you've gone through Certain things. If you've gone through, then you know what it's like. Then you will not want the next to go through what I'm not saying it's all bad, but definitely going through that and coming out the other end, I I think, makes me not want other people go through the same. But also, I can show people that you know what you can go down a different route. There's other options out there for you. You don't necessarily have to go down. If you don't go down this route, you're not a failure. You're not a disappointment.
2: You bring up a great point because one of the things when I'm uh, coaching clients is that. I encourage them not to necessarily look at something as good or bad. It just is. And societally, and I I think this is great because even though you're across the pond, there's still this whole idea and notion of when we don't follow a path, we are a quote unquote failure. When you look at it from that standpoint, it's a disempowering and, and limiting belief. What are some of those elements that you haven't shared with us yet that have guided you to where you are now, I've been quite lucky
1: that I've maybe been I've been confident, right? I've been able to go out there and, and see the world. But I think one of the big things for me is seeing how opportunities aren't fair for everyone. Then the, the playing field isn't level at the moment. back up, I've grown up and I've seen that a lot. Of your success is based on how ultimately the success and wealth of your parents dictates your success, and 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 I don't believe that's inherently fair. I've seen a lot of different industries and a lot of different places. I've so all around the world as well and, and I've seen a lot of things and, and that one thing is always consistent and I think for me that's the big driver right it, your success should not depend on your parents success your, it shouldn't depend on where you come from everyone should have knowledge of the same opportunities everyone should have the same access to everything and growing up I've seen that it's not the case right like I didn't even know about the tech sector no one came to me and told me about technology it was pure fluke I found out about, it. and if I don't know about it, and I am quite switched on about careers and I do go out and search these things, then what about the rest of the population?
2: You're spot on. So just to clarify for you, yeah, uh, you hit the ball out of the park. I,
0: I think uh, to make it, make that phrase friendly for our European audiences, you put it in the back of the old onion bag. Okay. That's a soccer reference. That's one of what one of the commentators says when you score a goal, you put it in the back of the old onion bag.
2: That is hilarious. So we are all learning together today. That's funny. But uh, the other part of that you touched on, Omar, is that I think the inverse of this really is that when you think about the uh, the whole idea of uh, everyone's been talking about the great resignation, the impacts of what COVID has done um, to humanity, I-, I would hope, right, that we are following your path, that we're hitting a reset, that we're no longer saying that you have to be defined because you have that you go down a defined path or that you go down the path of what your parents' expectation, ex- expectations are. And conversely, that it's okay to make that decision and we shouldn't live into this whole idea like what you were saying. Whatever my parents have done, whatever that influence has been, that is how some people succeed. And if you don't have that advantage, and it is an advantage, then you may not necessarily be able to move as far as you would like to but i think that it's a powerful statement so to clarify the your motivator was not knowing about the tech space and as opposed to being what some of us do is that we get that information and we lock it in and we just, we rock out to get that success you decided i'm actually going to share that ability with others and th- and that being the impetus behind your company
1: yeah when you know when you find about the tech space you've had the money you can earn the different types of of roles out there as well like i've been trying to do it maybe for four years i've seen the huge lack of awareness even the the bias and challenges to get into the space as well four years ago is a lot different i think now people are talking about it a lot whether they're doing anything about it is another question my vision is i want everyone in the world to know about the tech sector i want to touch every portion i want everyone to have the same access to the same opportunities. I don't want, you know, realistically ability and work ethic should be the, the barriers to entry and not anything else. And it's just not that case at the moment. And everyone is aware. Like, we do live in a bubble. The tech world is very small. Like, we managed to build a presence across the UK, US globally, but it's because it, it's not that big. And it's not that diverse. Everyone uses diverse, right? They they'll have a Spanish, French, Portuguese, German person, and they say they're diverse. They'll put right. one the, the one colored person onto their website and say that we're diverse. But does anyone look at their sourcing and selection process? Does anyone yeah. want actually go that further deep? How can you be inclusive if everyone's the same? What's the point?
2: Yeah. You're definitely on to something. I was just sharing with Jim before we started that I, I read an article uh, this morning that was talking about exactly what you said. Having one person for each group and throwing up a couple of pictures is not diversity, right?
0: There's a couple things in that conversation that, that I think is worth pulling out. So. You obviously had a personal experience where you just fell into tech and you discovered what that opens up. And then that started you thinking about, I just fell into this by accident. So that flipped the light switch for you as far as, hey, there's an opportunity here for me to impact the lives of so many people to help them navigate some of the challenges that I navigated just through will. Maybe I can shortcut that way for them. But in your process of thinking up a business model or thinking up a company model, what were the problems that you saw in addition to awareness and access about getting into the tech sector, training for the tech sector, whether it's as a technical employee or as a sales employee, what were the other things that you saw that were problematic? So
1: apart from awareness, the big thing was actually the biases on... The recruitment side of things so i think me and sonny are both quite unique we've worked like on all spectrums if you like on the recruitment side we've tried to get into the tech sector the candidate and then we've been on the thing when you're interviewing and hiring and the the big challenge is the inherent biases in the process so for example for an entry-level sales position right you have to have a degree right people say degree or equivalent experience that is one of the biggest barriers to entry for an entry-level tech sales position And that is ultimately what people look for. And this is a problem, and this is what no one really speaks about. Because the comp. and and I've worked on the recruiter side, so I'm saying things that are real, people just don't want to admit it. Companies are looking for people with degrees. With degrees, you're probably going to get middle-class and upper-class people. And because of the the nature of the beast, it is predominantly white people in in the tech sales role. That's not a bad thing, but that's just the honest truth. So if companies are looking for to great educated people who are probably going to be more middle and upper class, and that's going to reflect onto the recruitment agencies. So that is why recruitment agencies will go out and source only the one type of person because recruitment are service-driven businesses. They can be driven by what the end user wants. So if they know the end user is going to take a certain type of person, they're going to go out and recruit that certain type of person. Same with the internal recruitment people as well. It's not because they're racist or they're bad people or anything. They're just going to follow the money trail. So if, they've got, if they have to go out and find people, they're going to find those degraded people who speak in a certain way and look in a certain way because that's where they know the money is going to come from for them. And the same with the internal recruiters. They know that they're going to hit their quotas and their numbers if they get a certain type of person. And that's just down to what companies are hiring for. And the reason why, and this is going maybe further deeper down the line, but the reason why companies are looking for that stuff is because typically you've got founders at the top who are, I think there's a staff from the DWP, right, who are of a certain type of person. They hire people like them, that then fill into to people like them. And so it's a cycle, right? So until someone comes out and talks about it and actively addresses it, but also starts to get people from different backgrounds to get into the techs and become founders, that cycle will never change. And it doesn't change overnight. You can't create leaders at the top from different backgrounds Overnight, you've got to start talking about, get them in at the start, change the thought process of the hiring managers, get them to change the thought process of the agencies because the the hiring managers change and agencies will change because the money flow will be different now.
0: Those are fantastic points. So Omar, just to recap where we're at, because I'm a big context guy. So you've talked about when it comes to working in the tech sector or tech sales sector, there's an awareness barrier that you're dealing with. There's an access barrier that you're dealing with. You just talked about a structural barrier, both on the client side and also on the staffing and recruiting side. But there's also other barriers that are in place in terms of companies that exist that are designed to solve the problem, or, or at least say that they're designed to solve the problem in terms of so- solving these three three different sets of barriers. What did you notice about those particular entities in the marketplace that prompted you to launch Trainio as an alternative so i
1: think we saw this model in the us quite a lot there's a lot of companies that say they're going to get people from different backgrounds into tech and and that's their mission they're going to train them for free but ultimately what we saw a lot of them doing was they were charging people right so you they were training getting people they were training them and ultimately taking off a huge chunk of their first year income not just a salary but as well typically so what you're doing is You're getting people who are already in disadvantaged situations. You're putting them through a program and then you're getting a job, but then you're putting them, continuing to keep them in that dark situation. How long is that going to take you to get out there? So we said, we always said our model is going to be completely different. Like you imagine coming to a 20 year old Omar and telling me, I'm going to get your job, but you're going to have to make me 30 grand once you're done. Like I'm broke and you're going to make me more broke going out how i'm to live how am I to pay my bills and my, my rent like you're you're just in a in an even more sticky situation so we always said we were going to do things completely differently like we truly want to get people from different backgrounds into the tech space not just ethnicity and gender but socioeconomic i've got a big affinity for the working class and trying to shift that class system as well so we will never charge the students any amount of money i think that's in wrong it's predatory and it's not fair and it's massively misleading as well i don't think companies should work with training programs that are charging their students obscene amounts of money so for us we'll always monetize on the company side of it and we'll always keep it free for the candidates. we don't want any barriers to entry apart from like desire and ability right those two things should be the key crux of everything and we will never charge you. We'll do everything we can to get them into position.
0: I know that Lawrence has uh, has some areas that he wants to drill in, but I want to I want to actually put this into perspective. So when we're dealing with entry level tech sales roles, usually in an SDR function, these are people that are pretty junior in their career, and the salaries that they're making might be I don't know forty forty five fifty thousand dollars if you're working at a big organization, and and if I understand what you're describing correctly, Omar. A lot of the companies that quote unquote, give you the opportunity to get access into these roles are taking what 30, 40% of your OTE in your first year as payment for services. Is that, am I hearing you correctly?
1: Yeah, it's in and around that range. It can be like what, 30, 40 grand over kind of two years. It's a, it's a lot of money, man.
0: Wow, you said it uh, exactly right. It's that's predatory.
1: Yeah, that's
2: uh, even better term I think is brutal. It, it just, it's just the, because it really also continues to perpetuate the disadvantage. And Omar, what you're saying is that you want to take away that disadvantage and put someone in a position where they truly have the opportunity
1: uh, to thrive. Yeah, Just changed their life. It really does. Like, I've seen it. Right? I've taken people from A to B, and I've seen it impacts people. You've got people who know nothing about the tech sector. They're probably making 15 20,000 pounds a year. I'm talking about like UK money. Sometimes I work in two jobs they've got talent they've got ability they just don't know what to do no one's no one's told them they haven't got direction like you can't expect everyone to go onto youtube and to search things and to find things right it's already you're expecting people to do more than they already should so i've seen a change right you you can literally take someone who's making a low income and and who's got the ability and then you can put them into a into a well-paid SDR role. they'll be making like 30 40 grand basic with 10 to 15 grand commission like in the uk like a 50 grand income is amazing, right? Yeah. You can actually live. I'm not you know, not saying it, become a millionaire, but it takes you out of that position where you're not living day to day, right? You're not living month to month. You can afford to pay your bills. You can afford to pay your rent. You can afford to put a bit of money away to, to live. And it's not even to a It's just you're able to live and have that bit of breathing space and then progress on through your career. I think a lot of people haven't really lived and, and, and struggled and if you haven't seen that, you don't know what that's like.
2: So as you think about what you've done to this point, what your company has done to this point, describe a little bit about the vision. And as a startup, oftentimes startups also want to have industry impact. So the second part of that is what is the go-to-market strategy and your vision behind that as well?
1: So in terms of the, the overarching goal and vision, where we want to go is we want to democratize and revolutionize education. As we know it, education at the moment, it's super expensive. A lot of people really go for the for the experience, but it doesn't really get you into a role. It's not role specific unless you're doing a specific STEM. So unless you're going to become a developer, unless you're going to try to become a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist, a lot of the degrees don't prepare you for a world of work and they don't actually get you into a position. People will go to university, they'll come out and they won't know what to do. They'll still be working in like a up because they have no options. So we want to change education, make it cheaper, make it accessible for everyone and actually have it lead to a job. That's the big thing in terms of education. In terms of the industry, I want to make the industry more open-minded to people from different backgrounds. That's going to take some time. I want everyone to have access to the same opportunities as well. I think the way we do that is we, we get people to talk about it and we, we also we show them that this model truly works, right? And there's different paths that we're going to do in terms of different positions, different roles throughout boot camps, through our educational system. I believe we can change I believe we can massively affect the class and the wealth divide that we have not, and this is sounds crazy, right. But not just in the UK, but I think we could do that globally, right. Into every country that we go into and it's simple ripple effect as to how that happens. But I genuinely believe that we can definitely do that in society as well. And I think that's, we can play a huge part in that in, in terms of what we're trying to do in terms of us, like our go to market, do you, in terms of that, so for me, just to clarify that is that go to market terms of how we are taking our startup to the market absolutely yeah so in terms of that a, a lot of that will be done through social right so in terms of on the b2b side of things a lot of that is doing podcasts like these talking about the issues on linkedin making people actually aware of the challenges that people from different backgrounds face because obviously if everyone in tech is in the same space we live in a ball we forget so a lot of that is about trying to drive awareness through that we, we get a lot of traction coming in through linkedin as well and then in terms of like go-to-market on the other side of things, like maybe I'm giving it away, but if every company does this, and I believe they'll win, is you can't look on LinkedIn for your entry-level talent. Like they're not always on there. They're already in that space. We really have to drive awareness across different ways. And that's through different channels, right? They may not be on LinkedIn, but we were talking about this before. They are on Instagram. They are on TikTok. They are on Twitter. And and that is where the bulk of the population live. Not on LinkedIn, Is really is a select few more people like me, like my friends, everyone else, they're all under the platforms. So a lot of what we're doing is through social and we're going to try and capture students on both sides of it.
2: Do you have a sense of what your traction has been thus far with your strategy? I think that social is the ecosystem, right? I I wouldn't even say that it's the new ecosystem because it's been around for some time now. But you have a a great call out in that folks that are trying to find entry-level folks on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm in academia and I'm having conversations with uh, students and they're just on there, right? They're just like, yeah, I have my name out there and what I'm starting to do because they really have nothing to put on LinkedIn in their opinion. Yeah. And so as you talk about what you're saying, Instagram, absolutely, they're on there, right? TikTok, they're absolutely, they're on there. Uh, that's the reason I was asking the question. Just kind of a, a shout out to you for, for being spot on with this, the idea of uh, social being a, a strategy platform
1: i think that's what it what it all comes down to now, especially the market we're trying to penetrate and the people that we're trying to attract as well and trying to drive awareness um, that's the big way and, and linkedin just doesn't have unfortunately everyone on there and i think part of that also comes down to what i think it's important to note that universities don't care about where they place their students as well so they don't tell them what to write on linkedin they don't tell them about the sectors I've tried to reach out to university people. That I've had people in universities try and go to their placement advisors, and they're just not bothered, right? The system at the moment, placement at universities, and also placement in what we would call job centres, or I think you guys might call welfare offices. Neither of those institutions are set up to actually get people back into work, as well, or get people into the right kinds of opportunities.
2: Uh, I'm smiling because from an academic standpoint, and I'm new to academia, right? So. I came from the corporate sector and went into academia. And I, I would say that to to be transparent, I think you're, I think you're right. I think that there is this. I don't know if it's a if it's a don't care where they actually show up. I think it's it's more of a unfortunately don't know. And sometimes it's because the skill sets are very different, right? So in the academic world, there's more, it's more around theory. And as universities start to understand that you in order to make this impact that you need for your students. They have to be aware, meaning the universities have to be aware of these avenues. We're doing some of the things that we've done for the last 100 years and trying to get people to change that mindset is really the challenge. How did you think all that through? Give me an example of what it was like when you reached out to somebody at university and what the impact was, because I want you to to talk about this so that people can hear that experience
1: email and call people directly no response and then i actually tried to get so i had someone who's in two people right both of them are in two separate universities so they have direct access to their placement advisors both of them went directly to the offices of the placement advisors spoke to them about training so i've got a specifically and trying to get access to the student and show them about training the guy said yay yeah, sounds amazing and then they both just ghosted you follow up two three times they both just ghosted i've also In terms of the welfare side of things as well, I've been on that side, right? I signed on at some point when I I didn't have any money. It's not that they don't care. They're just not trained. They just come in, they have a database and that's all they give you as well. And when I talk to people at universities who have graduated, I, I do this all the time, their placement teams don't actually give them anything. Like they'll go, they'll talk and they don't get any opportunities. They have no access to jobs. They have a job board. And that's it. But what's the point in having a job board if you don't know what jobs to look out for? Right. If you don't know what Salesforce do, for example, and what the what an SDR does, or an entry level product manager know what you meant to do. So my question to you on that side is: Do you feel that universities should invest more on the back end side of things and the post placement side of things, and not invest in terms of systems and stuff, but invest in their people and get better qualified people who know about the different avenues and who actually give a damn and invest more in that side of things. Like I feel in the UK they do, but you're in academia more than me.
2: I would say that one of the things that's interesting is is that many universities have, they actually have the, they have licenses for LinkedIn, for example. But you actually made a point that I think that again, is that are the entry level folks that are on there. Maybe perhaps not, but the universities that have these relationships with LinkedIn have yeah. the ability to create that that entry level opportunity for their students. So the universities have to leverage LinkedIn as a part of their uh, as a part of their learning platform, or whichever they choose, right? So I plug only LinkedIn, but I know that LinkedIn has this. and so when LinkedIn uh, and what they do is they let they're leveraging LinkedIn learning and they're using that as the tool to one, introduce their students to LinkedIn, but all of the content that's on there what, that gives them the ability to learn some of these things. I think that the next part of it though is is actually putting the, the ball back in your court from a tennis reference standpoint, is that this is where your organization really can help. So I'm hoping, and that's why I'm teasing this out, that I'm hoping that, that academics are listening, that institutions are listening, because it is a great opportunity for them to partner with your organization to help guide that? Because sometimes it's also this, you can help that strategy, building the strategy for those organizations, right? So that's a sales opportunity for you, but really it's an advantage for the universities as well to be able to help their students and help their, I think the other part of your question was that those of us that work there also are familiar with these platforms and are familiar with companies such as yours to give advantages to the employee, to, to the, to the students. Cause we all do really, in fact, want our students to like that. That's one of my things Jim can share with you that we're working on some stuff right now where bringing him in uh, as an industry professional, specifically in the world of recruiting is going to advantage my students.
0: One of the things that I want to make clear is that each of us has stories about we've approached guidance counselors or, 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 people in positions of power for advice on career journeys. It's come up several times in the episodes that we've done. Omar, to your point, it's not, I think the the structural issue there is not an issue of not caring. I think you have, you don't know what you don't know on two sides of the table, and that creates a problem on the guidance counselor side or on the university or educator side somebody asks a question and they're responding to the question, but they're not asking the next question. So somebody in, in my position who doesn't know how to navigate this would go to a counselor and ask them, what do you think about this? And they'll give a cursory or, or a high level answer and point to some resources. But the underlying question that I'm asking is, how do I figure this out? Can you help me figure out which direction I should go? So there's a training element on the counseling side that needs to be addressed, which you can potentially fill. And counselors also have to understand that when their students or their, you know, soon to be graduates or whatever are coming with these sorts of questions, you can't camp out on the assumption or on the side that this person has a direct linkage between the question that they're asking and the answer that you're giving them. You have to take them through the journey of here's where your options are and point out all of those options Because 90% of the time, the person asking the question is going to have maybe one option in mind. And the key gap that needs to be closed is the wide range of options that are available. And that's, I think, where the gap is to your example of being at a job center, where a counselor will just give you a bunch of resources. Do I know how to access those resources? Do I know how to navigate it? How do I find out more about what these resources mean? It's really... A transformative exercise, and that's what caught my attention when I initially reached out to you about what what Trainio is doing. And I think that's like everybody wants to change the world. I, I commend you for that worldview because at, at a certain level, that's a reason why LB and I launched the show is to impact our version of what changing the world looks like. And with what Trainio is doing. There's an opportunity to change the lives of people that don't have access to these sort of jobs, but there's also an opportunity for you to bring those counselors alongside and really train them on how to be more empathetic or understanding because they're not connecting the dots with the community that's coming up and asking these questions. They're blind to the fact that, hey, people from a working class or lower class background probably don't know the right question to ask. So you have to guide them through it.
2: We have to look at this practically, in my opinion, right? And so some of the times, many of the times that counseling is coming from individuals who have that background that you discussed earlier, their third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation going to college. So some of this may not even register as a part of their toolkit, right? As the person that you're talking to may oftentimes be first generation students, those yeah. from backgrounds where they may not have had access to this information before. And so to Jim's point, spot on, is it's exactly that disconnect that won't be closed until someone brings that awareness. Hint hint, Tranio comes in and yeah. is the one that has the ability to do that. So again, I think that when you're looking at it from that perspective that there's that point. And then on the other side of it, oftentimes I'm talking to many students who are first generation. Mm. And it is really a it is really a conviction for me. And it sounds like that it is for you of really wanting to make an impact. But sometimes what Jim is saying, you even have to take a step back further to explain to them what they're asking, because they don't necessarily know what they're asking. And then you can't necessarily give them all of the options because that's overwhelming. But then you give them like two or three options so that it's a good start, but making sure they understand is to continue down that path of asking the, the next yeah. question because the other, the person that they're asking the question of may not know to, to how to answer or even mm-hmm. what's being asked because it's just not uh, in their uh, purview.
1: And I think you guys are an interesting point right? in, in terms of maybe S bringing the counselors along and, and maybe upskilling and giving them that knowledge as well. Uh, so they can be able to really... Pass that on. Because you, you're right, you can't tell the kids everything, but they, will always, they won't always know the, the right questions to ask. They don't know, okay, is, is this an option? Is this an option? Is, is this an option? But I think if they are, the counsellor on the other side is are, are more educated and they have more knowledge, they can help guide the students further down, whether they're first years or whether they're graduates. As well, because after first year, people might realise it's not for them. But then what happens to those students? Are they just cast away? Do they know what they're doing? Or do they know that there's other routes out there for them as well? Absolutely. Omar,
2: what are the key impacts that you're looking for for, uh, for trainio and initiatives that will help drive those impacts?
1: I think for us, key impact is the amount of people we get into positions directly. Um, we're always claiming that the background of the, the people that we are getting on board, where it just works out that a lot of people we get through are from disadvantaged backgrounds, because the ones that have an advantage won't come to us for anything they can get directly in. So that's why for us, a real, the biggest impact for me at the moment is the amount of people we can get from A to B and into positions, because that one, one person equals one life change. So that is the single biggest impact that I think we are looking at right now, both in the UK and in the US when we launch on the 4th of April biggest thing that's going to help that is just driving awareness of the tech sector and of what we're doing as well because at the moment people on the other side of the when i mean the other side i mean on the candidate side of things are still very they don't believe it sometimes right they're like what you can i go to uni and i come out and i don't have a job but after eight weeks i can get a job getting paid what they would think is mid to senior level manager money in other positions so for us the, the real key initiative for us right now is driving awareness across that side of the supply chain and really making people aware of the opportunities that actually exist for them. And that is the first part of it. And the second part, the second initiative is educating companies on the biases that they do have and what their current processes are doing and really to understand that this model works. So I think some people are always a little bit suspect Sorry. Of trying something new and, and, and of getting people from different backgrounds to space, and when people are a little bit on the fence, they will all revert back to what they know. So the second part of the issue is to educate companies, and when I mean companies, I'm talking about the people within those companies. And um, but these challenges do exist, and we need to do something about it.
0: Man, I am I am so pumped! And I was pumped before we had you in the show, and now that we've had this conversation, I'm super excited to see what you and the team at Trenio are going to be able to accomplish. This is phenomenal work. I'm super excited to promote you and your team however we can. I want to make it clear for the audience, make sure you're connecting and following Trenio Make sure you connect with Omar Sadek on on LinkedIn. These guys are doing great work. And anytime where we have an opportunity to spotlight individuals, organizations that are really trying to uplift the lives of regular folks in whatever way possible. I'm always going to get behind those causes. So Omar, super awesome conversation. Thanks for hopping on the show. And if there's anything that you need from us down the road, make sure you keep us looped in so that we can help you out. But this is fantastic work, man. It's super, super exciting, super interesting. Pumped. To have the conversation and can't wait to put the episode out. Yeah. yeah, it means a lot
1: when people buy into what we're doing and they see the vision. I think that's always, no matter how many people come up to, always us what we're doing, but it gives us the drive. So yeah, man. Look, thanks for coming on your words as well, and yeah, if we need to think, definitely give you guys a shout.
2: Yeah, I, I I thank you as well. I think that what stood out to me is that everything that everything that you said, you surmised with a statement, one person is one life changed, right? That is powerful. I I think uh, Jim and I will have to uh, figure out a way to to get you back because I have a hundred more questions for you. And I think that people need to continue to hear about your story. And for this one, you will be able, for our uh, listening audience, be able to hear Omar's story and train you on all of the platforms that you normally check out your favorite podcast. Of course, ours is the most favorite. We will also be continuing to expand. So we are now on TikTok and we are on YouTube as we continue to put out our content as a primary source on LinkedIn. So stay tuned for the next episode of Cascading Leadership.
0: Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.